Go ye therefore and teach all nations, notice the next part, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So there we have his parting instructions given to his local church. If it's one of the last things he mentions before he departs to heaven, do you think it's important? Is it really that big of a deal? Well, yes, it's that big of a deal. It's the roadblock to compromise. It's the roadblock to ecumenicism or false unity. So we need to discuss the importance of baptism. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew and the 16th chapter. We're going to be talking today about the church. Once again, we've been in a series, and we're talking about the fact that church still works. It does. And how it ought to be done. Church done right. Why, why we do what we do. And the Bible does say to do all things, what? Decently and in, what? Order. And so there's a reason we do what we do. We want to do it decently and in order. And so baptism is what I'm going to be talking about when I deal with the church today. There are some dates that stick out in my mind. I've mentioned March 5th many times as the day I got saved. I got baptized on August 9th of that same year. And I still remember that date to this day. And so there should be a time when we trust Christ as our Savior. And if we have been born again, there should be a time after. Never before. It doesn't count if it's before. It's always believer's baptism after salvation. And that is the date of our baptism. Well, in Matthew chapter 16, this has been our springboard. Jesus Christ is talking to his disciples. He says in verse 18, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We find there a lot of authority, a lot of power transitioned to the local church, and with it a responsibility. And with it, part of it at least, is scriptural baptism. So we're going to be talking today about the importance of baptism. Let's ask the Lord to help us listen. Father, we pray now for open hearts and open ears. Father, help me now uh, to keep my thoughts uh, clear and in order. And Father, I just pray now that we could uh, be honest with the scriptures and rightly divide the word of truth. And Lord, that we could come to a scriptural conclusion, a biblical reason why we baptize, when we baptize, how we baptize, who should baptize, the reason and the motive for being baptized. Father, help us now, we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned many times what Christ was talking about here in Matthew 16, where we see the conception, if you will, really, at least around this time period, of the New Testament church. We call it the New Testament church because there wasn't one in the Old Testament. That was a day of the priests and the Levites and Judaism and that kind of thing. But with the coming of Christ to the earth, he establishes a church. He establishes it upon himself. There are many who think in this passage he's establishing it upon Peter. 
But that's not it at all. In fact, a few verses later, he's referring to Peter as Satan. Peter was a man. Peter was not the rock. Jesus Christ is the rock. Christ was making a comparison when he referred to Peter's name, which is the Greek word Petros, or Petros, and it means a small pebble. But he referred to himself using the word rock, and he uses the word Petra, similar but different. Petra means a huge boulder. Jesus Christ is that rock of Gibraltar, that huge rock, the foundation, the cornerstone that the church was started on. Now we find here really the first words, if you will, in the Bible instigating the church. Now turn to Matthew 28. We're going to spend a lot of time in this gospel today. And let's see his last words to the church before he parts, his parting words to his local church. We've discuss the fact there was a church in existence before Pentecost. No question about that whatsoever. Mr. Schofield was terribly wrong on that assumption when he said the church started on the day of Pentecost with Holy Ghost baptism into a universal invisible church. Well, he struck out three strikes there. None of that is true. The church was in existence before the day of Pentecost, and it was formed during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ into a local, visible assembly that did everything local church even to this day does. And we've already covered that. I won't get back into it. But now we have Christ after three and a half years of earthly ministry. He's assembled the 11. Judas is dead at this point, but he assembles his church together. We pick it up in verse 16. It says, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, that means make disciples, notice the next part, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So there we have his parting instructions given to his local church. If it's one of the last things he mentions before he departs to heaven, do you think it's important? Evidently, it's very important. So we need to discuss the importance of baptism, especially since it's been so polluted today, it's been so perverted today, it's been so paraphrased today. Is it really that big of a deal? Well, yes, it's that big of a deal. In fact, millions, tens of millions of people down through the dark ages, even before and after, have shed blood. They've been martyred over this very subject. They they suffered horrible deaths. And so it's a very important deal. It's the roadblock to compromise. It's the roadblock to ecumenicism or false unity. And it's important. But let's discuss why it's important. It's important because, first of all, Jesus Christ commanded for it to be done. Anything that Christ commands His church to do, it must be very important. And again, if you would look at verse 19, after telling Him to teach all nations or to win converts or make disciples, the very next thing he mentions is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. This is a command to the church to baptize. And the commands of Christ are very, very important. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Do you love the Lord? Do we love the Lord as Fargo Baptist Church corporately? We certainly do here. And so we want to keep His commandments. Baptism is important because it was a commandment. Baptism is also important because Christ even set the example 
of doing it. If you'd look back to Matthew 3, you'll find out that Jesus Christ himself walked 60 miles to receive scriptural baptism by immersion from the man who was sent by God, the one with divine authority at that time, John the Baptist. 60 miles. Anyone walked 60 miles recently here? I don't think so. And if you would, it would have to be pretty important. Well, Jesus Christ walked 60 miles to get this scriptural baptism, and we pick it up here in Matthew 3 and in verse 13. It tells us, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan. That's a long ways. Unto John, no less, to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered or allowed him, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." So we find out here that Jesus Christ was baptized, not because he needed to be, but because he set the example for us, and it pleased the Heavenly Father. And the voice from heaven even spoke there. Why is baptism important? Well, it's a command of Christ. Secondly, he set the example. Thirdly, it's the only way for membership in a local church. There is no other way initially you can join a Scripture New Testament church without getting baptized. Now, why is that so important? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That makes it mighty important. If you die for some institution, it really must be important to you. The Bible also tells us that to him be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. And so we find out that Christ receives glory in, through, and by a local church. And so it behooves us to be members of something that brings him glory, and the only way we can be a member of a church is through scriptural baptism. That is God's method, always has been and even is in the present age. That's why back on August 9th, 1981, I was scripturally baptized in a scriptural church. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. That body for me was the Bible Baptist Church of Crookston, Minnesota. And we've discussed this verse already. Now, fourthly, baptism's important because it's, it's, our, it's like an identification. It's like a, a label being put on us. It's like a badge being put on us and, and a banner hanging over our head that we are now saved and we are following the Lord in scriptural baptism. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like that badge, like that uniform. It's an identification. It's like certain stripes in the military on a, on a uniform that says you're this rank or you're that or whatever. Baptism is a declaration. A baptism is an association. It's saying, I am part of this. I have allegiance to this. And when I got baptized, I declared all that, and so did you. In Colossians 2 and in verse 12, the Bible says, Buried with him in baptism wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God 
who hath raised him from the dead. Notice it's like identifying with Christ. Buried with him, risen with him when you come up out of the water by immersion. It's like putting on a uniform. It's like letting the world know that I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed to let the world know I'm a Christian. In fact, it's a way of saying, this is whose side I'm on now. It's a declaration. I'm on the side of Christ. We read this verse, and it's kind of an allegory in 1 Corinthians 10, 2. It says, of the Jewish who were wandering through the wilderness, they were all baptized unto Moses, in a sense, saying, all right, I'm associated with them. I'm on your side And so we've talked about that a little bit last time. Also last time we saw that to be baptized, you have to be a born-again Christian. There must be a proper candidate. Not just anyone qualifies for baptism. It's called believer's baptism. You have to be saved. You have to be converted. You have to be regenerated, whatever you want to call it. Look at Matthew 3 again, if you would. John the Baptist is baptizing here in this chapter. In verse 7... It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers. That means snakes. You think I preach hard. O generation of snakes, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. In other words, evidence fit of somebody who has been born again. That's what he's talking about there. He said, you guys aren't saved because you have to be saved in order to be baptized. There must be a proper candidate. And by the way, never infants. I I know that smacks in the face of most religiosity in this town, but you will not find an infant baptized in the Bible anywhere. It's always after salvation. It's always after that lost person has been penitent and willing to turn from sin and place their faith in Christ and call upon the Lord and ask Him to save them. And an infant can't do that. There is no such thing as infant baptism. And you say, well, where do children go if they die? They go to heaven. Because Jesus said in Matthew 18, it's not the will of my Father which is in heaven that any one of these little ones should perish. Until they can decide... God decides for them. They are not accountable. And nowhere in the Bible will you find a child or an infant being baptized even. In fact, you've got to be saved before you can get baptized. You've got to have the blood applied to the sin before you go through the water. It's always blood before water. Faith in the blood. By the way, not in the water. <laughs> nowhere do you find that in the Bible. Salvation is not by placing your faith in water. And that sequence is very important. Salvation first, and then scriptural baptism. You find it all over the scriptures. You find an Ethiopian man in Acts 8 getting saved. And then he gets baptized. Next chapter, you find Saul of Tarsus getting saved, and then baptized. Next chapter, you find Cornelius getting saved, and then baptized. That's always the sequence. In chapter 16, it's Lydia, and it's the jailer, and they get saved first, and then they get baptized. You get up to chapter 18, Crispus is saved, and then he gets baptized. It's always blood, faith in the blood, in the finished work of Christ before baptism. Now, turn to Matthew 28 once again, if you would. I just want to hit this in the head one more time. The proper order And and we read it a moment ago, but I didn't point it out. Notice here as Christ is giving what we call the Great Commission, it's in this order. He tells His church in verse 19, Go ye therefore 
and teach all nations. Literally rendered in the Greek, and you might even have this in the margin of your Bible, make disciples of, make converts of, win them to me, teach all nations. Talking about getting them saved. Notice next, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. There's that sequence. The third part there is the discipling of them, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So it's baptism after salvation. In fact, in John 4.1, the Bible tells us Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. They were made, they were saved first, and then they were baptized. So we see the proper candidate. Somebody's been saved. But secondly we see the proper method. The devil specializes in twisting stuff. And the, the biblical method now looks weird. I mean, immersion? For so many years in the realm of Christianity, clergymen have been pouring water or sprinkling water on the candidate, who most of the time is a baby, not even scripturally qualified. And if the devil twists something long enough, the norm seems odd. I'll never forget... When I heard that, that uh, you get baptized by immersion for the first time, I thought that was so weird. I'm all the way under in water? Really? And really, that's the way most of this town thinks. It's an amazing thing. But again, if you promote error long enough, the truth seems weird. You know, we live in a day and age when, when maintaining your purity until the marriage altar and, and being married as a virgin seems weird. If you aspire to do that, it's like, you're a freak. Isn't that sad? It's pitiful. It really is. But again, the lie has been told so many times. The air has been promoted so long that now the truth seems weird. Well, it's like that way. When, when I was lost and I heard about people getting immersed in water for baptism, it was like, are you kidding me? They do that? Really? Well, that's the only kind of baptism you find in the Bible. The very word baptize in the Greek baptizo means to put under. It means to submerge or to plunge or to immerse. All Greek scholars agree on that, by the way. No question on what the meaning of baptizo is. In fact, in Matthew 3, turn back there. Have you going back and forth in Matthew here. Turn again to Matthew 3 where we find the baptism of Jesus that we read about just a moment ago. Let me just point out to you something here. In verse number 16, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. Can you picture him walking up on the banks of the Jordan afterwards, dripping and wringing wet, straightway up out of the water? This wasn't a little birdbath of a font that they baptize in today. No, this was the river, and it was by immersion because that's the only kind found in the Bible. In John 3 and in verse 23, it mentions, and John, that is the Baptist, also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. If you could just pour water on a, on a candidate or sprinkle water on a candidate, you could just get it in a cup out of the tap. You don't need much water. But John went to a place where there was much water because baptism is by Immersion. Now, why, why is baptism by immersion? Why does it have to be by immersion? Because it must picture a burial symbolically. In fact, Romans 
says, therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, in other words, in reference to the death of Christ, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also uh, be in the likeness of his resurrection. I've explained this many times. Baptism must be a burial. And immersion pictures that. A putting under, it also pictures that resurrection afterwards. Sprinkling water or pouring water on somebody doesn't picture it. It's like that old life dying, uh, death to self, burial, like Christ died. In fact, if somebody dies, we don't lay them out on the ground and sprinkle uh, dust on them or, or pour dirt on them. We dig a hole. We put them in the ground. There is a burial. They're put beneath. Baptists have always practiced that. And, and one of the few who have always practiced that, immersion totally. By the way, Martin Luther practiced that at the beginning after he claimed to be converted. And, and up until uh, 1525, he practiced baptism by immersion until he realized he was aligning himself with the, the much-hated Baptists of his day. And so he backed away from that practice. But scriptural baptism requires a proper candidate. It requires a proper method. Thirdly, it requires a proper reason, a proper motive. The motive for what we do is so very, very important. You know, I was reading about uh, Karl Marx, who is really the father of communism. And, and, and Marx wrote his, his thesis on it. He was an atheistic uh, communist, basically. Uh, what most people don't realize is that Marx was a Jew. He actually grew up in a very orthodox Jewish home. His father was a lawyer and maintained their Judaism in a very rigid manner until he moved to a Protestant town. And the father dropped his Judaism and embraced a, a loose form of, of Christianity, very nominal Christian. And it so confused young Carl that he said, if that's all it is, if, if this is just a matter of getting business contacts in order to be a certain religion, I don't want anything to do with religion. And so he ended up writing his manifesto and and, and millions upon millions of people suffered and died as a result of that mistake. The motive for what we do is very, very important. If the motive's not right, forget it. Why should a person be baptized? Why are we baptized? Does it make you a child of God? Does it wash your sin away? No. We are baptized to show that we have accepted and embraced the true gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Very important. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Here it is. It goes on. How that Christ died for our sins, according to Scriptures. Number one, there's that death. Secondly, and that he was buried. And thirdly, that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. The gospel is so simple to memorize. It's simply the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism pictures that. And I've, again, done this before, but when you are put beneath the water, it's a picture of death and burial. When you're brought up out of the water, it's a picture of the resurrection. It's a picture of the gospel. It's about the greatest visual aid that I can think of of what the gospel is. Now, the second reason we're baptized is out of obedience to God. Now, notice again in Matthew 15 where you are. In verse number 15, when Christ was getting baptized, John didn't want to do it. And Jesus answering said unto him, 
suffer it or allow it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Let's do this because it fulfills all righteousness. When we are scripturally baptized, it's fulfilling all righteousness. It is out of obedience. By the way, why was Christ baptized for any other reason than that? He wasn't. Mr. Schofield said he was uh, doing this for his priestly consecration. Uh, He wasn't even a Levite. That's not why he was baptized. He tells us in verse 15, it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. I am setting the example, he says. Now, when it comes to the proper reason for being baptized, let's tackle the heresy of the ages. The perhaps biggest heresy of all. You know, there are those who... who, uh, Teach baptism washes away sin. Well, that's one thing. It makes you a child of God. That's another thing. But there are those who teach it saves you. It makes you uh, fit for heaven. We call this baptismal regeneration. I've used this expression. You've heard this expression. It's a big, long expression. What does it mean? Well, it's the false teaching that we are regenerated by our baptism, or we are saved. It's it's how we achieve salvation. It goes back to really, I mean, there are many who can say it was here or it was there, but it really goes back to a a Roman emperor who kind of evolved into the bishop of Rome, and eventually the, the office became that of the pope with Gregory the Great in 590 A.D. But earlier than that, Constantine, around 325 A.D., came up with this thing called baptismal regeneration. And it was the teaching that you are saved by your baptism. And after the false teaching of baptismal regeneration became the norm, there were the advocates who scrambled to the Bible to say, well, there's, there's probably some verses on this here or there. Well, let's take a look at those verses. It's very important that we understand these verses and be honest with the Scripture. Less than half a dozen, I think about five in all, that, that have to be taken out of context to promote this thing called baptismal regeneration. Remember this. We are to interpret the Bible with the Bible. We are to compare spiritual things with spiritual things, 1 Corinthians tells us. And we are told that we are not to privately interpret any particular verse in the Bible by itself. That is a huge violation of the first law of hermeneutics. First or Second Peter 1.20 says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Nothing in the Bible is to be just ripped out of context. It has to be compared with the rest of the Bible. We'll compare it in just a moment. But let's go to these verses, and you'll find the first one in Mark chapter 16. Here we have Jesus Christ about to ascend up into heaven. And uh, this would be similar to that time in Matthew 28 where he gives the Great Commission and so on, go into all the world and preach the gospel and such. Well, in verse number 16, here's where the confusion lies. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you stop right there, you have a problem. It sounds like you have to get baptized as well as believe. And that's what many churches teach. It's both. It's faith in Christ, but it's also baptism. That's what most of this town believes. Well, again, verse 15, he said unto them, talking to the church, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you stop there, you have an issue. If you read the rest of the verse, it says, but he that believeth not 
shall be damned. So what does the being saved get linked to? The believing, not the baptism. It had nothing to do with the baptism. He that believeth not shall be damned. You know, you could say, he who boards the bus and is seated shall reach his destination. But he that boards the bus and doesn't get seated, he's still going to reach his destination. It just won't be done right, won't be as comfortable. In the same way, Christ made that point. Uh, if you're going to be in the will of God, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But the, the baptism has nothing to do with the salvation. He that believeth not is still damned. Now, look in John chapter 3. Let's look at the second verse that seems to cause some confusion. And, and uh, apparently, by those advocates of baptismal regeneration, teach that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Let me say as you're turning to John chapter 3 that Christ often spoke allegorically. In, in other words, he spoke symbolically. Um, he, he, he made illustrations with his words. You know, he would say, I'm the bread of life. He wasn't literal bread. Or I'm the light of the world. He, he wasn't this big light bulb walking down the, the street or a candle. And, and he would even... At times, in fact, this one, he asked his disciples one time, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm, I'm going to be baptized with? And they said, well, yeah. He wasn't talking about water. He wasn't talking about immersion at all. He was speaking allegorically. He did that when he said, I'm the door, when he called us sheep, all kinds of things. So keep that in mind. He used that kind of language. And here in, in John chapter 3, he's talking to a Pharisee, a clergyman, who had come to him at night, snuck out, trying to find out, in so many words, how to get to heaven. And uh, Christ told him in verse 3, you must be born again. He goes on in verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Can you see where the confusion is here? Those who believe already in baptismal regeneration say, here is the water. Here is the baptism, except a man be born of, of, uh, of, uh, born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Well, you're making an assumption here that he's talking about baptism. He doesn't say baptism. It's not in the context at all. He says, be born of water and the Spirit. In fact, in its, in its closest textual form in verse 6, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. If you take those two verses and link them together, it's evident he's talking about the water in a sense of that's a physical birth. But the Spirit is a spiritual birth. But not only that, there are a lot of verses in the Bible that tell us the Bible is necessary. It's the catalyst in order to be saved. And many verses in the Bible compare the Bible to water. Ephesians 5.26 says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that is the Word of God. So there's nothing here about baptism being necessary in order to be saved. That's an assumption, and that's a wrong one. Thirdly, look in Acts chapter 2, if you would. In Acts chapter 2, you've got the day of Pentecost. You've got a number of people getting saved, and we find out they, they ask the question, how do we get saved beforehand? In verse 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent! And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You say, oh, pastor, we have a problem here. He says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sin. You'll receive salvation in so many words. 
Well, the key here, and it's underlined in my Bible, is the word for. Notice that word. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sin. It's a Greek word. I'll just pronounce it ice. And it means in reference to, not in order to get your sins remitted, but because they have been remitted. In order to makes all the difference in the world over because of. In fact, we find a leper. Let me give you an example in Mark chapter 1. He's healed, and Jesus tells him in verse 44, to offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. He had already been healed. It's not a matter of trying to get healed, and it's not a matter of trying to get saved by getting baptized. You're already saved. The baptism follows. It's like saying he was imprisoned for murder. Are you saying he was put in in prison so he can commit a murder? No. He's already committed the murder. Now he's in prison for it. And back here in Acts 2.38, Peter answered and said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, because of the remission of sin, not in order to receive the remission of sin, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, Turn to Acts chapter 22 if you would. Let's take a look at the fourth one. And this one, you're going to have to put your thinking caps on a little bit. This one really might shake your theology a little bit because it's Paul talking about how he got saved. And we've all heard preaching where, bless God, Paul got saved on the Damascus Road. He was struck to the ground. He saw a bright light. Well, if, if that all happened, it's, it's uh, kind of not in sync with the way ordinary people get saved. I prefer to think that Paul was saved after sitting and thinking about it and having nowhere else to go for three days in a state of blindness, he gets saved afterwards. When Ananias walks in and says, call upon the name of the Lord, and when he does, scales fall off even symbolically to point to the fact He got saved. If Paul got saved on the Damascus Road, we have a problem with this passage here in in Acts 22 because he's giving his testimony years later. And notice he's telling this crowd about how he found the Lord. And in verse 16, he's, he's actually speaking for God who says, And now, why tarriest thou, as God was talking to Paul, arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Whoa, we have an issue here. If uh, Paul got saved already, then, then what's this business of washing away sins through baptism? Well, if he wasn't saved until that, si- that time, then the getting saved here is by calling on the Lord. It's like Mark sixteen sixteen. The believing is what gets you saved, not the baptizing. They just lump them together quite often in the Bible because for an Orthodox Jew, that was a huge step. Not only that, but it often followed directly on the heels of getting saved. And so they got saved and baptized at the same time. Read it again. And now why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins? Does the washing away of sin come with the getting baptized? Or the second part of the verse, calling on the name of the Lord? I think it's obvious that it comes from calling on the name of the Lord. So that will help us to explain that as well. You see, but, but on the Damascus Road, when Paul was struck to the ground, he, he said, Lord. He called him Lord. Well, I'd call him Lord too if he struck me to the ground like that. Not only that, but on Judgment Day, there are going to be a lot of people, lost people saying, Lord, Lord. You know, 
Lost people call him the Lord too. You say, but when Ananias came in, uh, he called him Brother Saul. Before he got saved, yeah, Jews called each other brother all the time. That was very common lingo. So I still hold to that Paul got saved three days later when Ananias came in, and you can believe whatever you want, but you've got a problem with Acts 22.16 otherwise here. Baptism for salvation would be a work, and it's not a work. That's not how we get to heaven. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Titus 3.5. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Baptism would be a man-made work. And the Bible says, As many as received Christ, to them gave he power to be son, become the sons of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You cannot save yourself. Nobody can save you by pouring water on you. It's not of works lest any man should boast. Now let's tackle quickly the fifth verse here, and I'm going to have to go real quick. When it comes to baptismal regeneration, this is a classic. 1 Peter 3.21 says, The like figure, and it's a reference to the verse before where it's talking about Noah being saved from the flood through the ark, the water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Whoa, if you stop there, you'd have a huge problem. But the Holy Spirit puts in this parenthetical passage, and it's so important that he does. So it says, the like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's it saying? The like figure there, it's the expression antitupon, means the counterpart of the reality. It would be like, behind me, I'm looking at my shadow right now, cast from those spotlights up there. It's not really me, it's the antitupon. It's, it's the counterpart of the reality. Baptism does not save, it pictures what does save. What does save? We looked at that already, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We've talked about how baptism pictures that. When someone is immersed beneath the water and brought back up, it pictures a, a death, burial, and a resurrection. And so that's how baptism pictures what does save. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It does not save us from our sin. And that's what the filth of the flesh is a reference to here. I had a Protestant clergyman once say, oh no, that's a, that's a reference to, to dirt. The filth of the flesh is talking about dirt. Well, you couldn't be more wrong because the one thing we do use on dirt is water. Water does wash dirt away. The filth of the flesh here is not a reference to dirt. It's a reference to sin. And baptism does not save us from our sin, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. So what does it save us from? The rest of the verse says it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. It saves us from having a wrong conscience toward God. If we've been saved, we cannot be right with God until we are scripturally baptized. Well, there's a whole lot more we could talk about here when it comes to baptism. We're out of time. We'll pick up with it next time. But I do know this. When it comes to the church, the church has been ordained to baptize. That is the proper authority. And the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. 
It's where the manifold wisdom of God is. It's, it's the institution the keys of the kingdom of heaven have been given to. It's the only institution Jesus Christ started during His earthly ministry. And so it stands to reason that we as a New Testament church should be meticulous when it comes to this subject of Scripture baptism. We'll pick up here next time. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.